today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. I'm Jamie Weston for Scott. Today on the show, turns out parents actually preferred the 2015 sex ed curriculum. What will the Ford government do now? Hmm? Real estate prices in Hamilton have skyrocketed in the last five years, which I'm sure comes as a huge surprise to you. But where will prices be headed in the next few years? And a surprisingly high percentage of Canadians report being harassed in the workplace, which industry has the highest level of harassment? Stay tuned. The Scott Thompson Show podcast hosted by Jamie West starts now. A majority of those who uh, have been weighing in on sex education in Ontario, um, just on the first day of consultations, have uh, opposed the repeal, overwhelmingly, of the curriculum that was set out by the Liberals. Students, parents, social workers um, are flooding the government's consultation website and saying, no, no, this is not a good idea. Um, One of the uh, experts that that deals with this topic on a regular basis, uh, day in and day out, is Faye Johnston. She's a social worker. And uh, she talks to uh, kids and adults about sexuality in the province. And it's good to have you here, Faye. Thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. All right. So, um, first of all, are, are you surprised at all that there's just overwhelming support for the curriculum that the Liberals had put in play to begin with? I was expecting this from the get-go. Like at the, I, I spend most of my time working with parents and children and youth and doing this kind of work. And, you know, we know that parents support comprehensive sex ed. We know that kids deserve and need comprehensive sex ed. This is a debate that we've had for years on end. And we've always known that the majority of parents in Ontario support inclusion, support comprehensive sex education. They want their kids to get this education because they know that they don't have the skills to do, like they don't have the knowledge and expertise themselves. They want to make sure that kids are getting that information in a safe, inclusive environment. Parents have never had the skills to deal with sexuality and the conversation, a conversation with their young people about sexuality. You know, I'm, I'm broad brushing, but I'm doing it for a reason. I, it's true. <laughs> and, you know, like the thing is, like a lot of parents, you know, a lot of parents do know how to have these conversations. They, they have the relationship with, with their kids, but it's also a hard conversation to have. And it's also at the end of the day, kids need a space outside of their families where they can get the information, where they can make sure it's evidence-based and where they can have access to safe spaces to have those conversations. Because, you know, not every 15-year-old wants to have that conversation with their parents. Um, at the end of the day, it's good, like sex ed is built on strong relationships with educators and with parents. We need parents involved in these discussions. Um, but at the end of the day, we need to make sure the kids are getting access to the right information that is based in evidence. And, and that's what comprehensive sex ed is all about. So for those listening to this program, Faye, what, what are the key differences between what the liberal curriculum was proposing to, to have go forward and what the Ford government curriculum would do to repeal that in terms of going back to 1998 what what were the what were the differences between what ford ford government thought was okay which was dated 1998 and what the liberals wanted to do what are the key things there so the biggest thing to me and one of the biggest issues is um, around gender identity and trans identities um you know the ford government took out this curriculum specifically because of calls from social conservative groups like parents of first educators um which are groups that have historically campaigned against any inclusion of LGBTQ identities in the curriculum. Like, these aren't just, like, run-of-the-mill parents. These are social conservative groups funded by pro-life organizations, funded by, like, the strong uh, pro-life movement in this province. The religious right and and others. 
your average parents. These are people coming in with an agenda, right? And so they did this, and they, the Ford government revoked the sex ed curriculum specifically to cater to the desires of these very powerful groups within the Social Conservative Party. In terms of the difference between the curriculum, the uh, liberal curriculum touched on topics like um, consent, topics like online safety, healthy relationships. Um, like all of those things, they t- it touched on LGBTQ identities, but it also touched on really important elements like talking about the physical anatomy. Like young kids need to know about their body parts um, and about Absolutely. What they call their body parts. And that's actually a thing that folks who work in um, child abuse prevention have been calling for for decades. And that was included in the 2015 curriculum. The 1998 curriculum didn't include any of that. It didn't mention things like sexting. It was entirely out of touch with the realities of children and young people in Ontario right now. Yeah. Well, and let's, let's, I'm sure, Faye, I'm assuming that you're a big proponent, you said it earlier, that of parents being involved and having the conversation, that, that speaks to trust and relationships and that kind of thing. But really, it, it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if more parents were able to embrace fully uh, the conversations that their young people want to have with them? Wouldn't that be a great thing? It would be incredible. And the reality is, like, most of my work is with students in schools. I work with parents occasionally, but a lot of it is focused on educating young folks. And I hear from those kids that they want this information. They need this information. They know that it's good for them. And they actually want their parents to be ready to have those conversations as well. All of us would be so much better off if we could have the conversations that, uh, with our parents about sex ed, about sexuality, because that it's about relationships at the end of the day. I really want us to live in a world in the province where all of us are equipped to have these con- like complicated conversations because it will be better for all of our health. All right. Faye Johnston, uh, a sex educator, social worker, uh, thank you so much for this today. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. There we go. 905-645-3221 or star 9900 if you want in on this. And uh, uh, another guest that, that I've got lined up here is uh, Carly Bassian, um, sexual health educator. Uh, you just heard, Carly, what Faye had to say. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you want to echo some of that? Uh, wh- where do you think parents have the strongest role in assisting their young people with sexuality? Absolutely. I mean, parents have a hugely important role in their child's development. And it's a conversation that needs to happen between the schools and parents. So when you look back to the 2015 curriculum document itself before it was clawed back, there is a whole section at the beginning of the curriculum document encouraging parents to have conversations with their kids ahead of time and to be involved in those conversations with teachers to make sure that their messaging is consistent and the parents have the opportunity to have a conversation with their kids about their needs, and then the teacher comes in and supplements that as well. And I think part of the sort of controversy around this is that there's this misconception that there's this disconnect between conversations happening at home and happening in school. And a lot of the teachers I work with make the effort to make sure parents are involved in those conversations and have you know a bit of a say about what happens and, and complements the two rather than separates the two. But here's the thing. Um... And parents, I think, have a very difficult time knowing where to begin that conversation. My thinking or my gut instinct on this is that parents perhaps need as much education about how to have that conversation as uh, the students do themselves. I mean, they parents really need a primer, need experts to, to really give them sort of some guidance on, on how to have that, uh, that conversation. Would you not agree with that? 
I completely agree with that. And teachers are trained professionals to teach health education. And just as you said, parents aren't. Parents don't even know where to begin, or they may not even have the correct information. And that's why it's so important that sex education occurs in schools, because teachers are trained and they have an ethical obligation to ensure that they're tending to their students' developmental needs. So to not talk about sexual health education holistically is completely harmful for students because parents cannot do that alone. Well, and I think a lot of parents are hypocritical, frankly. they, they On one hand, they say, you know, I don't want the teachers in the schools talking to my kids about issues like LGBTQ plus or trans or, you know, whatever. Um I don't, or pregnancy or unwanted pregnancy or birth control or whatever it is, um, mm-hmm. you know, body parts, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want them talking to my kids about that. But then on the other hand, they're not willing to talk to their kids about it themselves. Right. So, right. so we're, we're in a, we're in a real, it, we're in a real funk here. And when you consider the fact that our society is perhaps more sexualized than than any place in the world is with uh, mass media portrayals of what sex is or should be or body image uh, should be or what normal is or what normal isn't i would i would argue that there's never been a more important time for us to be educating young people properly about every element of this stuff and and trying to bring parents and and young people together on it Absolutely. And we're in a time and age right now where one of the top conversation topics is diversity, inclusion and equity. And you can't have conversations about that and exclude sexual health as it relates to sexual orientation and gender identity and consent and all of those pieces. So absolutely, we have to take a holistic approach. And the current document that we're using from 1998, that's 20 years old, does not talk about these things. So we cannot prepare students to make healthy choices. As I say to teachers and parents all the time, by not talking about sexual health, is not going to stop kids from trying and experimenting. So do we want to at least give them the knowledge so they can make healthy choices? Or do we want to pretend it's not happening? And that's when you see students really putting themselves in very dangerous situations. What are the biggest fears that parents have, do you think, in your, in your experience? Well, I mean, just recently I was joining um, those town hall meetings that the government hosted on, on uh, a bunch of topics, including sex ed. And there's this very narrow-minded um, perspective that, you know, we're not teaching proper family values. Well, guess what? In Canada, marriage equality exists. And talking about same-sex relationships, talking about consent and proper sexual health, that's a part of that dialogue. And I think that there's a disconnect between what's actually happening, again, in the classroom and what's, you know, happening in parents' stories and the minds that uh, they're constructing. It's um it, it's kind of it's it's kind of strange to me. I I don't I think it, first of all I think it's great that the government has gone out um been so dumb as to say that they wanted to repeal this um curriculum and then find out that people actually want it. The question now of course is what do you think the government will do? With this information that they've sought, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah, they, I don't think they thought this would be the outcome, but this is not a surprise. There have been many polls taken before, and the vast majority of parents, students, and other education stakeholders wanted the newer curriculum to stay. 
So if the government actually sticks to their promise, and they have done so already, I think they're going to take this feedback, and I really hope they reconsider reintroducing the 2015 curriculum, and even updating that even more to be a little bit more holistic and updated. Um, If they don't move forward with making changes, that will be incredibly disappointing and not what the public wants, and also not good for students. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely not. Um, what are what are students saying to you when you're when you're with them? What what are their uh, concerns? What do they ask you about? What do they want to know about? All the things that are missing from the 2015 curriculum. I mean, conversations around consent are huge, huge right now. Gender identity, sexual orientation, especially during those teenage years and in prepubescent years, kids have questions about their identity and what different feelings mean. And the fact that it's the 1998 curriculum is very heteronormative. It doesn't talk about different types of relationships other than male, female. Um, they have questions about online safety and how to engage safely online and who to go to if they are in a situation that they feel uncomfortable in and all of those pieces that have been completely gotten rid of in the 1998 curriculum. Those are the topics that are the number one topics of conversation in classrooms today. And I'm happy to see that teachers are pretty much still teaching it. Um, They know that it's in our laws to make sure that students feel safe that they can enter relationships that they want to, regardless of their sex and their gender. Um, so it would be great to just make sure that that curriculum reflects those conversations once again. All right, Carly, you've got a website, mysexed.ca, that people can check out if they want, right? Yes, you uh, got it. All right, Carly Bassian, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having Take me. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you're in the Hamilton real estate market, uh, you know that you are a winner. Real estate prices in the Hamilton area, and this is just confirmation, have jumped by 70% over the past five years, uh, largely because of the uh, westward exodus of uh, GTA buyers competing for a limited supply of homes. And this is according to the Canadian Real Estate Association. Um, the, the new report says that price increases in the Hamilton Burlington uh, market uh, are there with the average home costing $581,900 is the fourth highest in Canada. Niagara's feeling uh, uh, this as well. Uh, people, the push is even heading on down into Niagara. Where will it end? I don't know. I have a funny feeling that there's going to be even more pressure coming this way. But what do I know? When you want an answer to a real estate question... You turn to Rob Golfy, who gets it sold. He's a realtor with Remax Escarpment. And uh, Rob, uh, it's nice to have you on the air. See your face on billboards all over town. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jamie. How you doing? I'm, I'm doing great. Does this uh, statistic out of uh, uh, Korea surprise you at all? No, it doesn't. And I think Korea mentioned that. I think we're the fourth most expensive uh, real estate, uh, I guess, area in the um, in the country. We are, yes. So that's a good sign. <laughs> it sure is. But, yeah. Uh, but no, no, I'm not surprised. We're we're too we're close to the GTA, and in the past five years, we had uh, a lot of millennials moving to Hamilton, and from five years ago till now, um, but I think it was 2000. Uh, what is it? Uh, four, uh, 15 and 16. Um, we were selling about 9,000 homes a year in Hamilton. Wow. And now, and now we're back down to about 7,200. 7, so all those, I just came up with a flight of stairs, Jamie. <laughs> here's my, <laughs> you sound like here's me. Here's my store, Brad. I just walked like, from my car to the front door, and I sound like you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't feel but, bad. But what, but what it is is, um, 
And then, and then in Niagara, uh, they have a bit of a boom, and it's more of the baby boomers are moving out there. Well, that's They're, what I've heard, that people are who are downsizing are heading that way. I'm, I'm assuming, and I don't know this, I'm assuming there's a lot of sort of condo development down there. Is that true? There is a lot of condo development. Um, Niagara Falls and St. Catharines are the two uh, cities that uh, seem to be booming more than, um, than Welland and uh, Waynefleet. But, uh, but we found that uh, even the builders from the, the local builders here, the, the larger builders, they're buying up land in Niagara because they know there's an influx of people wanting to move down that way. They're retiring, and the price points are good. They can, you know, it's, it's affordable. They're, they're buying houses that are probably two, $300,000 cheaper than what theirs are, and if, especially if they're coming from the GTA. They're, you know, they're buying a $500,000 house in Niagara, and they're selling their million-dollar plus house in uh, in the gta so they've got you know a nice nest egg now to to live uh for a long time with uh with all the extra cash flow yeah are the, you mentioned millennials at the start of the conversation rob are, are they the ones that are really are driving this thing and and what are they buying uh here in the city i i get the impression that some of the some of the older homes and uh, under traditionally underdeveloped areas of the city or or less attractive areas of the city are are maybe getting uh some attention is that true it, it, it is yeah it's getting cleaned up like a lot of like central north central hamilton even uh south central uh, um, a lot of millennials are coming in. They're cleaning up the house. They're fixing them up, and and then uh, and now, especially with uh, the uh, baby boomer population retiring, they're going into either old retirement homes or old age homes. Um, so these new people are coming in. They're, they're fixing up the houses. They're you know they're doing all the renovations on it, and they're and they're building a life here in Hamilton. And then also you have the investors. They are buying up these homes. And fixing and cleaning them up, and then and then people are buying them to move into. So we have a total transition that's that's happened, especially in the last five years. And uh, so the city's actually, you know, is 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 almost getting a facelift when it comes to uh, housing. Rob, is this a bubble, or is this uh, something? Are we going to see prices recede? Do you think by any percentage, or is this? Because uh, I know there was a fever there in 2016 and 2017. That's right. Are, are, are we? Be, uh, what I'm getting at is, if this pressure is part of the reason home prices have increased, and we make an assumption that that pressure probably is going to uh, continue, maybe not at the level that it did in 16 and 17, but will continue. Um, will we see these prices hold in this market, or will we see them recede? Do you think? I think what we'll see them hold because. I was looking at the numbers in 2012. We sold um, 7,600 homes in, in uh, 2012, and we're we're back on track in 2017. We're actually selling less homes, but prices are strong. Uh, prices are continually rising. So, like as of this year, the average sale price in Hamilton um, was uh, 504,000, and if you look last year, it was 501,000. And um, so, so even though we had that bubble last year in the in the first three and a half months, um, prices over the course of the the adjustment with with uh, real estate values, you know, they they spiked and then they came back down. But in 2018, they slowly r- rose again. And in uh, in so quite a few year areas, uh, the people that thought they bought too high last year, they're on track. Their values are strong now. Yeah, it's so, it's good. And to I know. think it's going to continue. And I really do think it's going to continue. Uh, moderately, I mean, uh, it, uh, I, I think we're going to see, you know, 
uh, single, small, 4 or 5% increase even next year. House prices are strong, but you have to be more accurate on your uh, price of your home when you're selling it. Um, people are very, very aware of values in different neighborhoods. So, uh, and then, you know, and there's still multiple offers on, on, on certain areas, like anything under 400, 300,000, um, uh, people, there's, there's an influx of buyers in that price range still. How have the, um, the, the new rules that the government set in place for qualifying for a, a mortgage, how have they affected uh, this market? And what do you see uh, with that heading forward? I've, I've heard rumblings that uh, there's going to be some pressure on the government to reverse some of that stuff. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think last year, I think there was a bit of a hit, um, and it did, and that affected the market. There's no doubt about it. Like, like somebody that can afford um, to buy a five hundred thousand dollar house, all of a sudden they were told they only can buy up, up to four fifty. So that kind of limited the, them in what they can buy, and sometimes they didn't even buy at all, and so they probably saved more money uh, because they weren't happy at the price point. Or the or the or the style or the location that they wanted to buy in because they because of that stress test that they had to uh, go by, but I mean, you know, I I I don't know. The stress test is just to help the the consumer so they don't get too far in debt. But what happens is they they just end up borrowing from something else after. So they're you know Canadians are you know are are getting better in their uh, you know debt ratio. But it, uh, but that did affect the market. There's no doubt about it. When they implemented that, right? That stress it, test. And and interest rates overall, does that does that have any kind of serious effect on on the real estate market? Um, I, I think, yeah, I think it does a little bit. Um, but but uh, Jamie, we're 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 still selling a lot of houses. Um, it it just um, you know I think the higher end homes are the ones that are feeling it mostly. Like the the eight hundred thousand plus, or even you know eight hundred thousand dollars now buys you a four bedroom, two story, double car garage, uh, twenty four hundred square foot home, and builders are selling in that. So people are thinking twice about that range in that price range. Um, but it it just it, it it is getting expensive, and and I think there might be a little bit of an adjustment on the higher end homes versus the lower end. Um, but but otherwise, um, real estate values are still really you know decent in uh in in the hamilton wentworth area and um we're still getting millennials coming not as much as they did in 2016 and 17 and even 2015 but uh but they're still coming they're looking they're they're, sh- they're more uh you know shopping more uh price price point price shopping more aggressively they're not jumping in as fast as they did in uh, 2016 and 17 they're really paying attention to the what has been selling on the street and and how's inventory? Are we running out of inventory for for people that maybe maybe looking to buy? Is there a lot out there that's listed? I, I there, mean, there, yeah, there is a lot of inventory out there. Uh, a, lot, a lot of it's overpriced, and the one is pr- the the people that are selling their houses and pricing it right. It's moving. It's moving uh, uh, pretty quick. So are are you saying then too that people are are getting I don't know weary of or are on to the um, thing about holding offers and trying to create bidding wars and that sort of thing is that kind of are we on the downside of that hot thing that was happening in 2017 and are people more uh, these days unwilling to engage in that and they, they just they want to avoid that at all costs or how's I, that working I, yeah I think the buyers do want to avoid that um, I think you really have to be careful and if you want to hold offers I think that could hurt you more than help you um, so there, there's a certain time, there's a certain 
area, certain, you know, uh, depending on the inventory in the area that's available, uh, you have to be careful because we have buyers. If it says we're not looking at offers for five days, they don't even want to see the house. So, and, uh, and we've seen things on MLS that they were holding offers. They didn't get any offers. So now they've just hurt their listing. And uh, now, now their, their listing is, uh, is on the market for seven days and no offers. So now they've, they've dated their listing. So now, you know, they lost the momentum in the first five to seven days. And they got no offers, and now they they took out that that holding offer situation. But it's too late. They they've uh, they've exposed it to the market with that uh, that um, you know holding offers, and now people don't want to see the listing. It, right. just, it, it hurts. You got to be careful. It'll hurt your listing. You just have to you have to be you have to be very trained and very experienced in how to do it and when to do it. Rob, are buyers that are coming, because we started this conversation about the fact that prices have gone up because of the pressure from buyers coming from the GTA, are are those buyers saying anything? Obviously, the price of of real estate here is, is a very attractive feature to them, but are they citing any other features that attract them to this area? Are they Are they saying, you know... Um, there are other great things about Hamilton, for example, uh, that made them want to come here. Because as you know, Rob, uh, Hamilton has uh, shared a pretty crummy uh, image uh, out there in the rest of Canada, particularly (laughs) when you get into Toronto. You know, it's kind of the poor cousin over there to the West. Well, I'll I'll tell you, the one thing about the, the millennials that are coming from the GTA, I mean, Hamilton obviously is not their first choice when they're moving this way. So they're moving this way because they want to own real estate and uh, they, they, they want to be a homeowner. So when they do come out here, um, once they move in, they love it. They don't, they don't want to go back because um, they found, like I'll tell you, we talk to a lot of people from Toronto. When they come here, they, they can't believe how friendly, more friendly the people are in Hamilton. <laughs> and, and and I mean we don't see that as being uh, Hamiltonians because <laughs> we're used to it probably, but <laughs> yeah. but the Torontonians that are coming this way, and they tell me they go Rob everybody's so nice here, and I go yeah, <laughs> and everybody and, uh, everybody but, thinks but, there's no green space here too until they get here right, and they discover all the green space that exists yeah. in our city. Yeah, no, they, they love it. The, the the millennials are coming from GTA. They love it once they move here. They're actually looking for jobs locally after they're here and they don't want to move back they love hamilton they love the people they love the the culture that's happening now with you know uh downtown uh they 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 want to start a family and uh and and be part of this community you know and that's and that as you just uh, alluded to there's this spillover effect because if if those people come from from outside the city um, they they bring energy. Uh, they bring uh, they bring their resources. Uh, they bring their entrepreneurship in a lot of cases, and they start businesses and they build lives here. And that's great for our local economy, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You can see the downtown. How many restaurants that are opening up? They're and they're fabulous restaurants. And you know, and people are more social. People go out more now um, to um, you know to socialize. They're not just staying in their houses. They're going out for coffee. Um, you know, just to, you know, sit mm-hmm. down and just enjoy, you know, being out, 
being out in the community. One Absolutely. last one last thing I have to ask you about before I let you go. Um, in that, you, you got me thinking about uh, d- downtown. Uh, I was downtown last night having uh, dinner with a friend in a restaurant and uh, along King William there and and James Street North. It's be- it's yeah. great. And one of the things you know, I looked up and saw this huge uh, towering condo complex. Uh, the other night I was over on King Street and I looked across at the Royal Cannot and and the condos that have have been built there. Um, you know, is are they full? Is this a, are people going to really come and, and live in the downtown? There seem to be all these uh, condo spaces, and of course, we're seeing new new hotels there, and things. This is exciting. Yeah. What's yeah, your take on selling. that? They're, they're selling. A lot of them are investors that are buying, and also uh, 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 other you know just people that want to move into. So you have a combination of both. So the investors that are buying them, they're not just buying one; they're buying buying probably two or three. But but then you get the person that wants to move into it. Um, they're buying the one and moving in, and the other investors are renting them out, um, or they, they possibly they may try to flip it. But um, but eventually they'll, they'll all turn into uh, uh, home ownership of uh, individuals that will end up moving into them. But um, but but it's it's making the economy go, and people are moving people are moving this way. There um, there's no you know there's no shortage of anything. So we're just you know I I think it's fantastic. Uh, you know Hamilton needs this, and, and I think it's the right time. Remember Jackson Square? How Jackson Square in the '80s was—it uh, was just incredible. Like uh, it was packed. And, it was, uh, yeah, yeah. And I'd, I'd love to see that again. I would love to see Jackson Square, you know, with thousands of people. Remember crossing the street there on James and uh, James Street when the, you're sitting there at the light and you see just a flood of people crossing the street going <laughs> to Jackson Square. Yeah, you yeah. don't see that big heavy. Uh, crowd as much as you did uh, 30 years ago, but I, I think we'll see that in the next 10 years for sure. That's great. So in your opinion, the the forward momentum that we're enjoying, uh, there's really no end in sight. Uh, it's it's going to continue to move in a positive upward direction. Absolutely. Excellent. Looking forward to 2019. Great, Rob. Uh, uh, this is great. And of course, uh, people should tune in and listen to you on the, uh, on the Real Estate Show on Saturday mornings here on uh, 900 CHML. Always great information uh, for people that are in the market or thinking of uh, getting into the market. It's always a great education. Love the program. Rob, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Jamie. Have a great day. You too. Bye for now. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's move on and talk to Howard Levitt. He's an employment lawyer about uh, Statistics Canada saying about 19% of Canadian women and 13% of men reported being harassed in the workplace. Howard, thanks for the time today. Oh, I'm happy to be there. So um, I won't keep you too long. I just want, want to get a sense from you. Uh, do, do these numbers, as a, as a lawyer in the field of employment law, and I imagine you have lots of harassment cases, do, do these numbers sort of ring with you or do they seem off somehow? They seem uh, too small. Do they? Too I wondered about that. Oh, yeah. I, I've seen surveys before which suggested far higher numbers than those, especially of women claiming sexual harassment. Understand, harassment is amorphous. And this is a 2016 survey before Me Too, and I suspect if it was taken today, people would, the numbers would be much higher because people now are more sensitized and interpret more things as harassment than they might have even two years ago. Yeah, um, and and reporting is the big issue, isn't it, Howard? Sure, people generally don't report, but then again, sometimes people report, and as an employment lawyer, I see this all the time, especially when I act for employers, people report matters that aren't harassment at all. They say it's harassment. They were looked at the wrong way by a coworker. They were... (laughs) Or criticized. They were criticized, or they were disciplined for incompetent work. Well, that's harassment. 
Right. So people come into your office and and say that they say I want to I want to lawyer up. I you know I they're they're harassing me. They criticized my work or they looked at me the wrong way. And and you say to them you don't really have a case. And then they start yelling at you, right? Well, they they learn not to yell at me or I'm protecting myself. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Turning it around, I do know what you mean. <laughs> Figuratively, I had, C- I had a CEO come to see me yesterday. Yeah, claiming he had been harassed by an employee by various employees. Okay, and other leadership in the associated organizations. And I went through it with him. I said, you know, there's really nothing here. There's nothing. It's like shoveling smoke. There's nothing you can really specify and concretize to prove anything. Is, is, that is mostly the case when people make claims of harassment. Is the definition of harassment, Howard, from a legal standpoint or in a societal standpoint, is it not specific enough? Is it too general? Like, are we we branding everything as harassment that maybe is just simple criticism and people should get a bit of a thicker skin? Or? Sure, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And also, it's a little bit like stress leave. What's stress? We're all stressed. Everybody's stressed. What day are you not stressed at right. some point or other during the day? Yeah. It's, it's amorphous. It's inchoate. It doesn't really amount to very much. To be and even harassment legally, what does that mean? Or harassment for the purpose of the Occupational Health and Safety Act, harassment for the purpose of a human rights complaint, harassment for the purpose of a mental distress claim. Uh, what does it mean? A harassment for the purpose of a constructive dismissal claim? Everyone will have a different definition. Right. So for our listeners, the results of this Stats Canada survey uh, um, uh, are based on Stats Canada's general social survey. Uh, all in caps, uh, gathered uh, data in 2016, uh, the year before the Me Too movement focused attention on sexual harassment. The report, uh, as we said, came out uh, yesterday. And even Stats Canada says we've got to we've got to follow up because of this this Me Too thing. The survey conducted from August to December of 2016 questioned almost 20,000 men and women aged 15 to 64 who had worked for pay in the preceding year. Um, 53% of women said the harassment came from a client or a customer at work compared with 42% of men. And healthcare seemed to be the, the area where most of the harassment was happening. Uh, is that something that is new or not new to you, Howard? Well, I would think that it has much to do with being unionized. Because unionized employees tend to be a bit more precious than the rest of us. <laughs> and public sector seems to be more precious than the rest of us. They find harassment more quickly. They, they're more dissatisfied with their jobs. They're more, they take more dramatically more days of sick leave than, than private sector employees. So it's health care, of course, is unionized, and it's public sector in most cases. Right. So, no, it doesn't surprise me. Also, in fairness... People in the healthcare field are dealing with people in extremis, people who are wounded, injured, scared, right. frightened, sick, relatives who are think they're not enough care is being given to their to their relatives who are sick. So it doesn't surprise me that there is more harassment in healthcare, quite apart from the perception. Okay, Har- harassment in general. Companies have HR professionals. A lot of a lot of companies do. Not all of them do, but a lot of them have HR. Uh, departments or uh, individuals, small departments to, to deal with all of these issues. In, in your opinion, as a as a lawyer that's dealing with this on a day in and day out basis, are, are we are companies doing a good enough job uh, staffing those HR departments or those HR professionals uh, professionally developed enough? Um, what, what's your take on that? Because that that seems to be the the place that employees are, are supposed to go first 
to, to deal with this stuff before doing anything else. What, well, what's your are. take on that? Well, a lot of HR departments, really, or lot, especially smaller ones, they don't have people with that expertise at all. They're, they're, benefit, they're benefit clerks or they're right. payroll administrators. They're not, they're not psychologists. They're not people who really understand interpersonal dynamics. And they're hired for skill, or they may know labor relations, union issues. They're not high, especially in Hamilton, where I come from. They're not, although it was more unionized when I was a kid than it is now, but they're not trained in the psychodynamic skills of dealing with people who are harassed and, and really winning out what are real problems from subjective complaints. Right. Okay. Howard, uh, I, I think we'll be talking about statistics and numbers for a very long time. Appreciate you spending a few minutes with us here today. Anytime. All right. Take care. Bye for now. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. There's Howard Levitt. He's a he's an employment lawyer uh, in Toronto. And uh, Andrew's been uh, kind enough to uh, be patient on the line. Go ahead, Andrew. Hey, how you doing, buddy? Good. You wanted to uh, no doubt talk about uh, Bob, who called earlier to say that we're living in a police state and that and that, um, and this is all off the back of the new legislation that's in place today that has police able to stop you, um, uh, you know, at a traffic stop and issue a breathalyzer test to you, even if they don't have strong suspicion that you're impaired. He says that that's equal to the brown shirts. That's what got my ire up. Go ahead. No, I would completely disagree with that. I mean, I don't, I, I cannot speak for him or the experiences that he has personally had. But I can tell you that the police will not be saying, okay, every red car or every third car, we're going to go eeny, meeny, money, this car. No, 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 no. In order for the police to be pulling you over, they actually still have to have a reasonable, like, they have to have a reason. They can't just, like, say eeny, meeny, money, moon, select Okay, all the female drivers. They're not allowed to do that. Well, okay, that's fine, but we're talking about the breathalyzer. They don't have to have a reason to to give you that. And I agree with that. Okay. I do, Um, especially considering the recent legalization of cannabis for recreational use. Yeah, and never mind the Um, prescription drugs that people are taking that may impair them as well. Exactly. I mean, the breathalyzer isn't going to tell you much (laughs) about that. what, What the breathalyzer will tell you is whether or not the person has alcohol on their breath. Yes, exactly. It doesn't, doesn't speak to pot. It doesn't speak to opiates. It doesn't speak to anything. I'm sure that's coming, though. Drugs. I'm sure that's yeah. coming. When the technology finally gets here, it, it will probably come. Yeah. My personal view is I think that they should lower the 0.08 to 0.05, especially <laughs> considering the cannabis legalization. Because, now, and you may or may not agree with this next piece, but I don't have a problem with somebody smoking a joint, waiting an hour and then driving. What I do have a problem with is if they're eating edibles and then driving because your liver is processing it and that changes up to a much stronger metabolite, like 20 times as strong. And you cannot, under any circumstances, be expected to drive in a reasonable fashion after consuming a cannabis edible or any kind of, like, any more than even one beer over dinner. I wouldn't recommend more than one. There you go. All right, Andrew, I got to run. Thank you very much. I appreciate the call and the points. Well well made, well taken. Thank you. Have an awesome day, sir. Have a great day. Bye-bye. There's Andrew, and here's Dave. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. You wanted to say. I, I, I couldn't. I don't agree with Bob. I mean, the actions of uh, one police officer may save somebody's life. What is the problem with making sure people aren't driving impaired? Um, I've had interactions with the police. I I, I, I 
and I'm going to just kind of go off a bit here very slightly on go ahead. quickly on carding. I, I don't mind it because I, I live in a million-dollar home. I, uh, me and my wife were going out for dinner one evening, and we turned around the corner, and we got pulled over by the police, and they wanted our ID and everything like that. It was it was, it was not a bad, you know, we just we treated each other with respect. We went to the car, checked everything on the radio, came back, called us by our first name, and said, have a good night, and away we went. Um, like, I, I agree, like, to a, to a point, I mean, yeah, but to, to compare, you know, you want to have some, but I don't believe the police are wasting, want to waste their time picking up, picking on people that don't need to be picked on. They have more important things to do. If I think that's the point. I think that's an excellent point. Um, if, if, if you talk to police officers, they'll tell you they have no shortage of, of things to do and they have no, no shortage of business. And so, um, to for anybody to think that it would be any kind of a priority to priority to the police to just for fun go fishing uh, out there and pull cars over uh, for basically no reason isn't that's insane that's just a that's just an insane uh, assumption that's based in some sort of paranoia paranoia based uh, delusion because uh, the police don't ha- don't e- don't even have the luxury. Of, of being able to do that, of being able to sit around and say, well, I'll just go out on the street on patrol tonight and, <clears throat> you know, just for fun, I'll pull cars over. They have enough <laughs> real issues to deal with uh, out there on the roads and reasons to pull cars over, right? Absolutely. And a final point is what you put out to the police, you usually get back. So my advice to everybody is if you treat the officers with respect, I've never had a point where you didn't get it back. So that's my final message. I don't believe we're... <laughs> Yeah, even close to being brown shirts, I'm sorry. I'm glad you called. Thanks a lot, Dave. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.